0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want you to turn right back to where we were last week, 2 Timothy chapter three, and uh, we're gonna be looking at the word of God again. And I've entitled this message, you know, why should I trust my Bible? Why, or can I trust my Bible, you might even ask. And this is going to be a little bit different, and uh, I hope that you will kind of indulge me on this. Uh, last week, we really spent some time uh, reading and studying from the scripture kind of the benefits of what Paul writing to his protege, Timothy, uh, told us the Bible brings into our lives. Uh, And I want to remind us of that as we get started this morning. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and we'll read verse 17 as well. Let me read it for us. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. Now last week we talked a little bit about how the word of God was inspired and we're going to come back to that in just a minute in depth but I do want to remind you that this passage of scripture says the word of God is profitable meaning that it adds value to your life it adds something to your life that is beneficial and then it gives us these four ways that in, as we interact with our bible we see it uh, it adds value in the areas of teaching and rebuking of correcting and training in righteousness and I think if you're part of a Baptist church, if, you've, if this is new to you, if you're new to our church or new to a Baptist church, this may f- sound a little bit funny, but if you've been part of a Baptist church for a while, you know that Baptists in the Bible have always had a very special relationship. That's not unusual to be in a Baptist church and hear them talk about the importance of the scripture being God's holy word. And the reason is We want to take the word of God as seriously as we possibly can because we believe that God has revealed himself through the word and through the person of Jesus Christ. And if you want to know God, you have to not try to find God in yourself. You can't find God in creation alone because God says that creation points to the Savior, but he's revealed through the scripture. I mean, it's a beautiful thing for us that we essentially have this book written for us to know God. And I would say this to all of us this morning, if you feel like you don't really have a lot of knowledge about who God is, I mean, it's waiting for you right here. It's right there for you. And so for us, we really believe that that's important for us to know how to interact with our creator and how to search out who he is. Well, he's given that to us in the Bible. I once heard someone say this, and later it became a song uh, that I heard, but somebody said you can use Bible like an acronym, B-I-B-L-E, you know, that's the book for me. We used to sing that little song, but it stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Have you ever heard that? Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. That's what the Bible is for our lives. Now today, this is maybe not going to feel like a normal sermon that we're trying to preach, But I want it to be almost more like a seminar about how we got our Bible and why we have it. And I've never tried to do this before, so if it falls flat, you can tell me afterwards, like, you never need to do that, it gets terrible. You know what I mean? But we need to try it, and here's why. I've had enough people recently ask me, like, how did we get the Bible? Why do we have these these 66 books? Why don't we use these books? Why don't we have other things? And I just think it's important for us to do that. And to be honest with you, uh, there's probably... Two types of people in the room. Uh, there, there's people like me who have never worried about these things in all of my life. I've, I've never sat around questioning the authority of the Bible. Uh, I believe it's God's Word. It, it just was never a thing for me. And I haven't thought about the things that I'm telling you, honestly, since I was a seminary student because we had to learn all of this stuff. And so, you know, that's not really where it is. But sometimes there's another group of us that just goes, well, The skeptic in me asks, how can I trust this? How can we really trust that this is God's word? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. I wanna start this morning with the doctrinal statement about the Bible that we as Baptists hold, and I'm going to read it for you. It'll be up on the screen. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principle by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. And that comes from the Baptist Faith and Message. We give you a copy of this uh, when you join our church. It's a little booklet and it has scriptures underneath it that back up every position that they take. But you can find this online if you just search Baptist Faith and Message. 2000. Very important for us to see that. And you may have noticed two issues in the first statement that might seem to be incompatible, and that is, who wrote the Bible? I mean, how did we get this? How how is it that we now have this book that we call the Bible, and in that, it said that there were men who wrote the Bible and that God was its author? And that feels like those are incompatible things. How can it be that men wrote the Bible, and yet God is the author of the Bible? Sometimes the authors of the Bible took down dictation, as in the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. If you remember that, uh, God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Moses breaks the tablet, and then he has to refashion them again, right? So God had given that. I mean, that's from God himself. Other times, they were writing letters to churches under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so God is the author because he divinely willed this to be. These authors were inspired and that's the word that we use to give you the, guy, the idea that God was driving this. This wasn't just some guy sitting around saying, hey, maybe we should write a book that'll be able to be held for all of the churches. God was the driving force of this. I want you to listen to how the apostle Peter described this process in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 and 21. Above all, you know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter is laying out what we know to be true. The prophets of old did not just sit down and say, hey, I have a thought. I'm going to write it down and I'm going to say, thus saith the Lord. It didn't happen that way. That, that's not how it was. These weren't guys looking at, at the world around them and trying to make interpretations of the times they were living in. These were men who didn't have a, a really their own will being pushed into the world, but it was God's will and God was using it. And as God spoke, these men carried along by the Holy uh, Spirit uh, for us to now have our Bible. Now, this is a really a beautiful picture and we're going to see it because this same word is in another part of the new testament this idea of being carried along now you say so you're saying that god through the holy spirit wrote the bible yes and theologians have a big term for that but here's the idea it's not as if they just sat down and like a trance came over them and they started writing that's not how it was The Holy Spirit was moving in and amongst their lives and it says they were carried along. I want you to see this from Acts chapter 27 and verse 17 because it's the same word that Peter used and I really believe it gives a detailed picture for us. They're talking about being on a ship. After hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. Fearing they would run aground in the Sardis, they lowered the drift anchor and in that way they were driven carried along well what was happening the wind isn't that interesting the wind driving a ship along giving it its power pushing it isn't it interesting that the spirit of the lord it's the same idea right we, we understand that the spirit of the lord god breathed pushing carrying along Driving it along as the boat was being driven, not under its own power, but the wind, the biblical authors, as they were writing, they weren't just conscious of their actions, but they were not driving the ship. They were being driven. And that's the distinction that quite frankly makes it very different from all other religious writings that you might read. You, you could read a lot of different reliter- uh, different religious literature that didn't make its way into the Bible. But the difference is, is that people were driving the ship. And when you read the scripture, you understand that God was driving the ship. And here's one of the things that I think is, is so telling about this. When we read the Bible, I read a lot of things that inspire me. Do you? I mean, like literature inspires me. Maybe you read a poem and it really moves you emotively, you know, to, to feel, it kind of gets you in the feels, as they say. But not many things that you read in your life actually have the power to change you. As you read it, it, it changes your life. And that's the, the point here. And so you should know well uh, at this point that the Baptist faith and message says that the Bible is this perfect treasure of divine instruction that's a beautiful way of saying that God has given us something in the Bible that we don't get from anything else. It's a treasure. It's to be treasured. David says, thy word have I hid in my heart. It's an idea that that it's treasured in our heart. it's, It's revered for us because it's the word of God. That same doctrinal statement later says that the Bible has no mixture of error. And this statement is important because it gives us two characteristics of the Bible that we call inerrancy and infallibility. Inerrancy. Now, this is important that we understand that. It means it's without error, right? If it, 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 it speaks to something, that's without error. And infallibility means that it's trustworthy in what it tells us to do. Now, I can hear you already saying, but wait, pastor, hold up. You just said that the Bible was written by men and God driving them. So how could it be that fallible men, because we're all fallible, right? How could it be that fallible men wrote the Bible? Well, it's not impossible to write something infallible as uh, the famed pastor Erwin Lutzer once said. I mean, if you write that Winston Churchill was the prime minister of England, that is an infallible statement. It It doesn't have error in it. All right. right, I mean, that, that that's not an impossibility to do, but it's imp- incredibly important for us to understand this morning that if the scripture speaks to something, it's correct. If the scripture speaks to it, you can trust it. You, you can take it to the bank. And this point is often brought up as the sticking point by skeptics who just say at various times, well, you just can't trust everything the Bible says. There are things that are wrong with the Bible, but what's happened over the last uh, several hundred years is that archaeology and the study of archaeology keeps disproving all of the sticking points. I mean, you you don't have to take my word for it because these aren't even Christians who happen to be doing this uh, all the time. I mean, it's archaeologists who don't have any skin in the game. I mean, they're just trying to find out what the truth is, and over and over and over again... The Bible has been shown and proven to be true. I would say it like this, for instance. The scripture is not a science textbook, but where it speaks about science, it's right. The scripture is not a historical textbook for us, but where it speaks about history, it is right. One of the things that uh, I was reminded of in, in my study this week is that uh, many many years ago, one of the, the sticking points actually came from the book of Luke, uh, book of Acts. Now I said Luke because it was actually one book originally, Luke Acts. Luke writes the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and it's kind of crammed together. And if you remember why he writes it, he says uh, that that he wanted to to provide an accurate account after he had researched all things in the Book of Acts. Uh, there was this place where Luke listed pro this Roman title, and he used the plural of it. And people said, well, I mean, everybody knows there's, there's not two pro-councils. It, it, it doesn't work that way. There's one pro in an area, but later archaeology discovered uh, and, and through the study of, of some manuscript evidence that there was a transition period in this one city and there were 2 proconsuls ruling at the same time. Luke wasn't wrong. It's not as if the Bible is trying to be a history book, but if it speaks about it, you should trust it. You should understand it. So how did we get the Bible to where we are today? Well, our Bible is one book made up of 66 books. One of the early church fathers, Jerome, called it the divine library, and I love that. It's a divine library. It shows that there's this idea that God has given you a book That contains a library of books inside of it to reveal himself to us. I mentioned last week that these books together later became known as the canon. Not the canon boom boom, but the canon with one in in the middle, right? The canon that means the measuring stick, the measuring rod, the ruler, so that you can measure your life against The scripture, you can look at your choices, your thoughts, your attitudes, your morality, and you can look at the scripture and see whether it lines up or whether it falls short. And that's actually what makes Christianity so distinctive in our world. We're not following individual teachers. That, that's, not, that's not what we're doing. When, when we look at the scripture, and I mentioned this last week, we don't really have the ability to say, well, you know, I really like this part of it, but I don't like this part. I mean, for instance, I love the wisdom literature. I, I love reading that stuff. That is great. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, wonderful. Love reading the Proverbs, love reading the Psalms. You know, I mean, the rest of the Old Testament, mm, not so much for me. I mean, have you read Leviticus lately? It's a little tough, you know, but God put it there for a reason. There's a reason that we need to read that. There's a reason that we need to see it, right? God didn't make a mistake when he gave us these things, and that's what makes Christianity so different. We're not following individual teachers. And I would say to you, uh, I'm always very, very nervous when we get kind of uh, like a Christian celebrity. To be very honest with you, that almost seems like two words that can't be in the same, same sentence, Christian and celebrity. It just doesn't work very well. Because there's something about us having a following that we were never meant to have. In fact, Paul writes about that in the Corinthian letter when he says, you guys are following this guy and this guy and this guy and some follow me and that's all wrong. That's not how it's supposed to be. When we look at the Bible, we're seeing this divine library of God's given us and we need to read the full counsel of the word of God. We try to preach the full counsel of the word of God to you. When we read the Bible, we're not a critic to say, I love thee. Writings of the Apostle John, but man, Mark—he was off. I didn't like him. I just—I don't like that. That's—that's that's not our job to do that. Maybe you even say things like, "I really love reading the apocalyptic literature of the Bible," but oh man, some of those—those those things that Jesus was teaching about love your neighbor as yourself—it's just so hard. I don't know if I could do it. That's not what we do when we read the Bible. We measure our lives against it. We hold our lives up to the true standard. Now, the Bible is made up of. Two Testaments, isn't it? There's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. The Old Testament is exactly shared with uh, the Jewish faith. In fact, the early church ratified it as it stands. The 39 books of the Old Testament uh, is there. And the early church adopted this from the beginning. In fact, when you read the New Testament, what you see Jesus and the apostles quoting is the Old Testament. That was their Bible. That's what they had. And as they quote from it, they're giving authority based to it. When you look at the Old Testament, you see those 39 books listed. And I think it's important to understand the three types of writing. As I mentioned last week, in the Old Testament, there is the law of God, the first five books of the Bible. There are the prophets. And then there are the writings, as it's called, uh, that contains things like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, the historical books, and all of those things. The content has not differed from the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament canon or testament was closed 400 years before the time of Christ with the last book that we have, which is called Malachi. Now that 400 years until the birth of Christ uh, we, we call that B.C. to A.D., right? That's the intertestamental period. What does that mean? It means it's the last time God speaks in the Old Testament until the Gospels, God speaks again through his Son. That, that's the next time we see the revelation of God in that way. There's an interesting thing that the early church had in one of their first council meetings at the council that takes place in 95 AD at the Council of Jamnia. I cannot say that word. I knew I was going to do that. Jamnia, J-A-M-N-I-A. And it's the entire Old Testament ratified. Now do the math on this. This is important that you see this. 95 AD to 400 BC is roughly about 500 years, right? Because we, did you know this? We count down BC, right? You remember that from school, don't you? 400 300, 200, 100, Jesus Christ is born, then we start counting up again, right? Remember how that works? So, as we're doing that, we see that very early on, that canon is closed, fully ratified by the early church. And I think what's amazing about this is the amount of fragments of the originals that we have. Now, you say the originals. We've been talking about the inspired Word of God. And what we mean by that is the original books as they were written in Hebrew in the Old Testament. In Greek, in the New Testament, and you say, well, do we have a copy of the originals? We do not. But what we have is manuscript ev- evidence because remember that scribes were copying these things over and over and over again. And the largest find of these manuscripts is at a place that you can see if you go with us in Israel. It's a place called Qumran. And in fact, if you go, you'll get to go to the Museum of Qumran and, and you get to see uh, these Dead Sea Scrolls is what they're called. And if you, if you remember the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's found uh, by two Bedouin boys who are, are out kind of roaming around and they throw a rock in a cave and they hear something break. And what broke were some clay pots Right? And they go inside and they discover not just preserved manu- uh, fragments of manuscripts, but some almost full copies of different books of the Old Testament, and they predate the time of Christ by hundreds of years. And this is very important for us because forever people said that, like Isaiah, must have been written after the time of Christ so that it could give credibility to when he was born. And Absolutely false. It's incredible to be able to see that. Again, that's science, it's archaeology. And so what we know from the Dead Sea Scroll finds are incredible for us. When you read Isaiah 53, as we do at Easter and Christmas, what you're reading is the Word of God predicting and prophesying for us with incredible accuracy what's going to take place with the coming Savior. And you can know with confidence that this is backed up, not just because your pastor told you this, but because a group of archaeologists in the study of these scrolls can tell you that this is true hundreds of years before. I encourage you, if you... Haven't ever read that story, you can go just Google the Dead Sea Scrolls and you can hear this story about how these were found and how they were preserved and how they were were sold and all of these different things until they were finally brought together for scholarship. But that leads us to the New Testament. The New Testament, just like the Old Testament, several types of literature. There are Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's history, the book of Acts is the history of the early church starting Uh, The Acts of the Apostles is kind of that long-form version of that title. There are epistles. That just means letters. Uh, And they're general epistles written to the churches. We just studied one in the book of Ephesians. There are pastoral epistles, which we have read from this morning. And then there's that apocalyptic uh, literature that's coming at the end, the book of Revelation, for us there. So how do we get the canon of the New Testament? Well, if you think about the New Testament... It's basically completely uh, finished by the end of the first century. Now that's incredible for you to think about because Jesus has this 33 to 33 and a half year ministry as scholars date it. So let's just say that by 34 AD, Christ is dead, resurrected and living in heaven. And by 100 AD, it's finished, done. Everything's been written. And that's an incredible thing for us to think about how close these things were together. The death of Christ verified outside the scripture and the Christianity verified outside of scripture during that time as a historical event of the Roman Empire. But what makes the New Testament so compelling is that it's telling about the death of the Savior and it's telling how we can be changed by the death of the Savior. In fact, before the canon is even completely closed, the apostles are already quoting scripture in their letters to the churches. For instance, Paul quotes Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 18, for scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. We saw this last week, but in case you missed it, Peter who wasn't always getting along with Paul on certain issues of personality, quotes him as authoritative in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 and 16. Also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they do with the rest of the scriptures. The canon of scriptures written by apostles or people who had an eyewitness viewpoint to Jesus like These 27 New Testament books were selected by the early church and they have never been changed. And what I mean by that is there's never been a point where they were taken out or later one was added in. You just don't get that. In fact, one of the earliest lists of these books is known as the Muratonian Canon. It's a Latin list discovered and named after its discoverer. Uh, Ludvicchio Antonio Matorio, an Italian scholar. Now this was discovered in 1740, but it dates back to the second century around 170 AD. And it contains the names of all of the books of the New Testament at that point, except for Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter. That's an amazing thing for you to think about. All of the books of the New Testament by 170 AD are being widely distributed around the churches and they're being accepted as the gospel canon given to us by God. By the end of the fourth century, there are two councils that meet to decide the the final fate of the scriptures. So this takes place in the council of Hippo in 393 AD and the council of Carthage in 397. And the canon is then set for good but pastor, you might say. There are books of the Bible that we don't even know who wrote them. Well, this is true. For instance, the book of Hebrews. Maybe we should just take a quick poll. Anybody in here believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews? I mean, we could. nobody? I don't know. I mean, it doesn't say, it could be, uh, I don't think it was either. Why was Hebrews then accepted? Well, when you read Hebrews, there is no melding together of the Old Testament and the New Testament covenants explained like there is the book of Hebrews. It's a beautiful picture of everything explained for us of why Christ had to die, why he is the high priest. And that's true throughout history. There were several books like that. And maybe the book of Esther, you've heard people say, it doesn't even mention God, it never says his name. This is true, but it tells the history and the story of God doing great things through his people. When the early church fathers sat down, they believed that these books met the standard for Scripture. I think that's important for us to look back on is that uh, when we look at the Scripture, we're really reading something that has been divinely kept for us. And there's no book like the Bible. Think about this. Sixty-six books, all these different authors, one unified purpose. It's beautiful, isn't it? A question that I'm often asked is, well, why don't we study the Apocrypha? Well, The Apocrypha uh, is something you might be familiar with, particularly if you come from a Catholic background, because the Catholic Bible and other Bibles sometimes contain the Apocrypha. And one of the great differences that we see here is that the early church didn't believe the Apocrypha met the standard for scripture. For instance, some of the books contain historical inaccuracies. I mean, they're just, they're just not there. Whereas when you read the Scripture, it consistently proves itself over and over again. Others in the Apocrypha are almost legend-like in their writing, and they do not carry the weight of the Scripture. Particularly of note, if you're comparing and contrasting the Catholic view of why they might have the Apocrypha versus others who say, we don't have that, there's what happened in the Protestant Reformation. There's this great debate going on. You may remember Martin Luther has these sola statements, and sola being Latin only. He says, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. We, we only need the Bible alone. And what he's saying there is that, that man doesn't give authority uh, that supersedes what God's word has. And that's a very different viewpoint. In fact, he's debating a man one time named John Eck around this very issue. And Eck makes the statement that the church gives authority to the scripture. Well, that's a very different view than what we as Protestants believe about that. We believe that the scripture gives us the authority for the church. It's, it's not the other way around. Um, you, you know that I might say something today and Uh, You would not take that as being on the same level as Scripture, I hope. For instance, I might say never eat broccoli again. That's just good advice. But it may not be uh, on the same level as Scripture, right? Why is that? Because we believe that I'm a flawed man just making a statement to you. But when we see the Scripture having authority, what we believe is that God and And the church are not on the same level. God supersedes the church. We we submit ourselves to this. And this is really evident when you you look at the apostles and Jesus. Because interestingly enough, uh, they never quote anything outside of the Old Testament, do they? They're, They're never using any external sources for that. They might mention something, but they don't quote it as authoritative for us to go back and look at it. I think Dr. Bruce Shelley points out something Interesting in his book on church history when he says the early church primary aim was to submit itself to the teachings of the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you get the Bible that we have today. In fact, we see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Why did they do that? Why, Why is that? That word devotion used there. Well, they recognized something that that we should see as well is that Jesus had called these apostles. They had been with him, they had seen him in his resurrected form. And so they were different than everyone else. I think the last thing that I might say to you about the Bible this morning is that it's extraordinary in its unified purpose and message. God has preserved this for us in miraculous ways. Over the course of my life, I've often thought about David's words from the Psalms. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. The Bible illuminates the world for us in a way. I don't guess it would come as a surprise to you that I believe that the Bible is God's word cover to cover from first to last and I think one of the things that happens is that we look around the world today and we might see with our own eyes and we're able to discern that the world is broken. If you read any news this week, you watched any news, you know that we're living in a broken world. And all of the elected officials, and I don't just mean ours, around the world, all of the elected officials recognize the brokenness of the world and they're always trying to fix where they see the brokenness. And and for instance, in in our country, it uh, it doesn't matter which political party you you favor here, this is kind of what we do. We see a broken issue. And what we generally try to do is throw money and education at it because we believe that if we teach you enough things and we give you enough money, then all of the brokenness ends. But it, it doesn't. We're the most affluent country in the world and we're broken. Money won't solve this problem, Right? Uh, we have some of the best educators in the world in our country, but that doesn't change people's hearts. The Bible tells us that what sin does in our lives is it, it breaks things. It breaks relational uh, equity that we have. So, so what I mean by that is that when you sin against God, there's a broken relationship. There's a fracture that takes place. When you sin against uh, your husband, your wife, your friend, uh, your boss, that there, there's a, a relational brokenness that takes place there. And so when we look at the world, sometimes the church often, uh, we we adopt the policies of the world. We just think if we throw more money at something, if if we just educate a little better, then that's not what happens. We need life transformation. That's contained for us in the scriptures because the scripture outlines what the problem is, tells us what the solution is. It tells us that Jesus came and died for us. He died because we were destined to spend eternity separated from God under God's judgment but Christ loved us enough that he came and took the penalty of death, the sin that was ours. It was placed on his shoulders. He died in our place. He was buried, but praise God, he rose again. And that's what makes me come back to the Bible over and over again is not only that it perfectly and accurately describes the problem of sin, but it tells us how there's a solution to that. It's through new life in Jesus Christ. If I could say this to you as a congregation today, a lot of us, as we mentioned last week, we, we revere the Bible, but we may not be as devoted to the word of God as we should be. To be devoted to it is to submit ourselves to the authority of the scripture and bring our lives in line with the measuring stick that God has given us. We don't get to choose what that is. God has given it to us. And we all recognize that in this life as believers, we won't measure up. That's why Christ died for us. That's why we needed salvation. But praise be to God that through the power of the Holy Spirit, He is transforming our lives day in and day out so that we are not who we once were. I would hope today, if you're not a believer or you're skeptical about the Bible, that you would investigate this for yourself by reading the Bible. Don't just take my word for it. Read it. See the life-changing nature of this book and let God's Holy Spirit illuminate the way for you. Because ultimately, it's the only way back to wholeness with God. And I think it's important to know because we believe that the Savior is coming back and he's gonna judge the living and the dead. And when that happens, it's too late. Read now while you have the chance. Say yes to the Lord while you have the chance. I want to give you three resources as we close our time this morning. Uh, you might just jot these down uh, that you might find uh, particularly helpful, especially uh, for some different reasons. And, and I think they're very easy to read, easy to understand, but, but very good. If you have anyone in your life who is, say, under the age of 40, they are now being confronted with something called progressive Christianity, which is seeking to dismantle the Bible by just asking questions without providing answers. There's a great book called Another Gospel written by Elisa Childers. A-L-I-S-A-C-H-I-L-D-E-R-S. This is not a paid promotional spot. It's just a great book. You ought to read it. Uh, give it to anyone who's under the age of 40 who's, who's dealing with that progressive Christianity thing. It's called Another Gospel, Elisa Childers. Uh, there's another book and, and the author I have down pat, but the, the, I'm going to forget the title of the book and shame on me for that. But his name, I'm, I quoted him Erwin Lutzer, E-R-W-I-N Lutzer, L-U-T-Z-E-R. And if you Google that and, and look for his book on the Bible, it's fantastic. It's a very easy read, very informative. Uh, I think it's only about seven chapters, but very, very good. Well, one other thing that I would also encourage you to do is that, um, The Baptist arm of publishing is called Lifeway Christian Resources, and they have a couple of resources that are very, very helpful. One is called the Holman Bible Handbook. It's almost like a commentary of all the books of the Bible, and it's about this thick, but it just gives you some explanation of things, like maybe, like, that's a hard question. Where would I find that? How would I do that? And it kind of walks you through that. Uh, not very expensive and very good to have on hand. I use it all the time uh, and I recommend it all the time. And if you can find a copy of the Holman Bible Dictionary or any good Bible dictionary like that, it's just very good for you to be able to have those two resources. Again, not a very large investment, I think, for what you get out of it. I want to uh, close us right now Uh, in prayer. And I want to ask you just to join me in this. And I want us to just start by thanking God for his word today. Father, we thank you for these ancient words that have stayed the same throughout the centuries. We thank you that you have preserved it for us perfectly. We thank you that you have revealed yourself through the scripture and the person of Christ. And our prayer today, Lord, is that as we read the scripture, it would not just be an interesting thing for us or something we may even feel like sometimes is a chore we have to do, but we would see as a chance to get to meet you today. Father, for some of us, um, we might be skeptical about it. I pray, Father, you would reveal yourself through the scripture. God, for some of us, we're not saved today. And our prayer is that the realness of Christ would be made known in this moment. God, would you help us to be faithful with the gospel, faithful with your word. We ask these things in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.